Dan. How's it going? Morning, Mary. Really well, thank you. Excellent. So I guess the big excitement in the last couple of weeks has been haircuts. Have you managed to make a trip to the to the barbers? Yes, I have. I have really exciting news on Tuesday. <laughs> um, I managed to squeeze in into a cancellation slot. I called my hairdresser on the Saturday. Initially, they were giving me options at the end of August. The book oh, three really? Um, but I managed to squeeze into a cancellation slot. So um, that is a big, big excitement for this week. Yeah, it's great. Fantastic. And are you contributing to inflation? Have the, have the prices gone up? That's a funny thing. So a lot of people have been saying the barber's price has gone up slightly. I did pay a lot more than usual, but I think that's because I ended up with a more senior stylist than what I would usually have. So I don't think my place have actually put the prices up. Okay. So was that little little treat for yourself then? Because you treat so myself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard <laughs> to go back. Once you've had the um, the senior director stylist, it's um, pretty difficult to, to go back to just a normal senior stylist. But, um, <laughs> but I, I, have, I don't think I've contributed to the inflation statistics uh, there. So John will be happy on that one. Yeah, it's good to hear. So I guess we're in mid-July recording this and probably we've bored the listeners to death talking about each of our upcoming holidays. Um, so maybe worth before we go into this episode, worth flagging that we will be drawing to a close of season one. But look out for one final episode next week uh, where we'll do a season one wrap up um, and reflect on our favourite moments. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be really interesting to look back. I mean, we've done, what, 22 episodes now and it feels almost like a different era when we started doing this back in the office in, in January. It does, uh, So I'm, I'm looking, really looking forward to having a good chat next week about um, looking back over some of the good episodes we've done. Um, and then, yeah, like you say, it feels like August is going to be pretty quiet. I guess a lot of people are getting away. So um, we'll be tentatively planning to be back in September when, um, who knows, we might even be um, looking at commuting a bit more again. Who knows? Well, wouldn't that be, yeah, a change? <laughs> we'll see. No forecasts, no forecasts. Absolutely. On with the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So today on Investment Uncut, we welcome LCP's Energy Analytics team's Head of Market Insight, Kyle Martin. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, Kyle. Would you like to just give a bit more background on kind of your role at LCP and what the team does? Yeah, sure. So as Dan just said, I'm head of market insight in the energy team. And I look after policy and regulation for our clients. So tracking things that change either from government or from the regulator and looking at what impact that has on the energy sector itself. In terms of the team at LCP, we provide modeling frameworks to a lot of people in the energy sector, looking at both long-term models out to 2050 and beyond, as well as short-term trading platforms as well for energy traders and other companies interested in that space. In terms of who we provide these products to, we provide government with their primary forecasting tool used for long-term forecasting, the impacts of energy policy on the market. We also provide National Grid with the tools to keep the lights on through setting the capacity market recommendation levels and also the regulator Ofgem with tools to assess network charging regimes. Wow. <laughs> it's fascinating stuff, Kyle. And, and since I've been an LCP, I've been really interested to learn a little bit more about what your team do, just because I guess it's so different from the day-to-day work that a lot of us spend the rest of our time talking you know, talking to investors and pension funds and those sort of things and just a completely different angle on stuff. But I've been really looking forward to this conversation because there is a lot of overlap, I think, with investors and people investing into particularly renewable power. We'll get onto that in a second. But just to kick us off, perhaps you could let us know one thing that we should know about you that we won't find on your CV. 
I might give you two things. I'll do one is I'm a one-time pub quiz champion. Not for lack of trying, though. <laughs> <laughs> one at once, at least. They're hard to win. I mean, that's tends to be pretty high in most pub quizzes, right? So I don't know. I, I take that. You've you got you to take those wins. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Probably the other one is I once rode the Thames for charity, which isn't on my CV either. Rode the Thames. Wow. The whole length. It was from Chelsea down to just beyond Greenwich. So London section mainly. Nice, nice, very nice. Okay, so we were hoping to have a chat about renewable energy investments today. It's obviously remains a really hot topic among investors, among pension funds. It's obviously regularly in the news. Bloomberg are often writing columns about renewable energy investment generally. I've worked with a small number of very large schemes that have made sort of investments into things like solar power, wind power, energy from waste, and those sort of things over recent years. I think it's been quite a popular area for, for pension schemes to invest into. But maybe one point to start from, on your webinar a couple of weeks ago, you talked about the fact that energy prices went negative in the UK earlier this year. And that was a bit of a surprise to me, to put it mildly. So perhaps you could talk us through what happened there and why that was. Yeah, sure thing. So um, I think negative pricing is becoming more of an issue now because of the amount of sort of subsidised renewables we have in the system. So essentially what happened is that to actually build renewables, there were subsidies required. So you would pay £50 extra per megawatt hour they produce sort of on a volume basis to say, we know this is a new technology. It's relatively new into the market. We need to give you some help to actually build these power stations, which was good. And it's got a lot of capacity in the system. But what we're seeing now is due to the amount of renewables on the system, when it is windy, when it is sunny, they will all get the top-up payment still. So they'll still get sort of £50 per megawatt hour, whatever they produce. So effectively, when the actual wholesale price, the actual power price for the market goes negative, and say it went down to minus £49 for that period, those wind farms, those solar plants, will actually still get £1 positive at the end of it because they get their subsidy offsets the negative pricing. So when you get that period when you get very high renewables, quite low demand on the system, they're effectively setting that lower price for the amount of power they're trying to sell into the market, making those prices go negative. It's because they're getting paid that bit extra from the subsidy, they keep wanting to produce more and more energy into the system, even when it's kind of not really economically right for them to be doing that because demand is just so low. But they're just still effectively pumping more and more energy into the system, which then pushes prices negative. Exactly. I and mean, in any normal market, you wouldn't have a company producing a product for a loss. It's just the case that because they are still getting money from subsidies, that they can produce at a loss and still make a profit themselves. So negative pricing sounds negative, as is obvious, but I guess who loses out here? So the energy companies themselves, as you said, still make a pound profit here. I guess it's the subsidy wasn't necessary, but is there anyone else that's impacted by that sort of feature? Yes, I think probably more importantly is those that aren't getting a subsidy. So if you're looking at gas plant, coal generators that are still in the system, they will be selling their power into the market still. But for them trying to sell into that market, they won't have the benefit of a subsidy, at least. So they will see the impact on wholesale prices being lower will directly impact their revenue. So they will see a knock-on impact from this. And there's been other policies put in place to support them due to this issue. In terms of who it helps, though, I think if you're looking at people like battery storage devices, they can actually charge up during those negative pricing periods. So while your price is negative, they're actually saving power for later. So they actually get a much bigger spread on their power and actually benefits them and their way of selling power into the market. So they can actually buy cheap or buy negative and then sell when it goes positive again, which is good for them. And of course, if you're, um, if you're a consumer, if you're turning your dishwasher on during that time or your washing machine, there are some tariffs out there that actually allow you to get paid to do your washing. So good for us, not so good for some of those power generators out there. Negative interest rates. It sounds a bit like a negative rate mortgage, doesn't it? As a consumer, you really get that passed through to you. So that's really possible to get a tariff that would pass that back to us, Carl. 
Yes, there are several companies now that actually do that and will give you an alert the day ahead to say, actually, tomorrow is going to be a negative pricing day during these times. Please feel free to turn up your demand. We'll put a link to those in the show notes. I wouldn't mind taking a little look at that myself. And actually, at that point, we've obviously dived into the discussion there, but maybe we just want to take a quick step back and just maybe you could give us some insight, Khan, into how these markets function each day. So how does it work? Is it sort of like a clearinghouse for energy each day and you've got people making decisions hour by hour as to how much energy they want to put in and the price moving around in the market like that? Is that sort of how it works? Yeah, so there's several different markets. I suppose you get people buying and selling power out from sort of two years ahead into the market. So there'll be people who will buy a certain amount of their power every month. As you get nearer to real time, they'll start to optimize their position. And then the prices where we start to see them going negative is normally the day ahead or the sort of, we call it the intraday market, but within day market as well. If you're a renewable generator, you wouldn't sell your power two years out because you don't really know if it's going to be sunny or windy. So you'll sell your power much closer to delivery. So for them, sort of the day ahead market is when they'll say, great, it's going to be very windy tomorrow, very sunny. We sort of know our power will be there, at which point that day ahead market or the intraday market can be quite volatile. So if you've got renewables there and they're all in the system and generating, you'll see the prices drop. On the other hand, if you have a very still day with very little sun, you'll see those prices really jump up to be quite high as you have to turn on those flexible generators, sort of the gas, the coal, et cetera, to make up that loss. So you've got providers of, I guess, other sources of energy having to react very quickly right at the last minute, having actually sold two years ahead. They're being sort of very much disrupted by this new kid on the block. I think from where we were 10 years ago, we now see a system that is sort of very much a renewable system. I think renewables are becoming very much the dominant technology on the system. And that means that people really understand that the days of buying your power months ahead for delivery are gone. We'll need to actually be looking at what the weather's doing, whether it's driving your renewables or whether it's driving your demand. If it's a cold day, people turn up their heating. So people are much more, they can understand much more how you need to be reacting to the real-time markets. And we sort of see actions being taken from two years out, but much more in the day ahead, the intraday, a half an hour before delivery. People are still trading power. So it really is a up until real-time market, this one. That's super interesting. I'm, I'm seeing a bit of a parallel there with the sort of oil futures type market where some people will try and get their oil price years in advance, but there's obviously still the market just for the day before delivery. Obviously, earlier this year, we saw some weird things happening in that market with a very short time to delivery. So I suppose it's got some parallels there. Interesting. One issue then. So from what I understood when I've worked with investors looking at renewable power, a lot of the early series of plants that were developed had pretty favorable subsidies attached to them. And I can't remember all the details, but I understand those subsidies have sort of gradually been phased back a little bit. Could be getting towards a point where renewable plants will be invested in without any subsidies attached. Wouldn't that mean that they were then exposed to these prices going negative and that would be quite a big risk for investors? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting one. I think when you look at some of the older CFD projects in particular, they are quite high strike prices. So the price they get guaranteed for their for 15 years would be around sort of the early offshore winds for around 140, 150 pounds, which was, you know, great. And they've got no negative price rules in there. So they'll get paid out that much at all times. So it's a very stable mechanism for them financially. Looking at the sort of latest round of CFDs, we're looking at prices coming down sort of below the £50, below the £40 mark now for some of those assets and could get lower for some of those mature technologies. But with a CFD, they'll top up to your strike price. So say you've got a £40 strike price in the market. So you'll get your top up from 0 to 40, depending on what the wholesale market's doing. If the price goes over that, so say the wholesale price actually shoots up to £50, £60 in the future, you've got to pay that much back to customers. So although it's very stable as a mechanism, it also limits your sort of potential for the asset to actually outperform. So there is a very stable for the market and very stable for investors, but it does limit your able to sort of capitalize on some of those higher prices in the market going forwards. 
Yeah, and just to clarify, because CFD stands for contract for difference, doesn't it? And from what I understand, correct me if I get this wrong, it's just effectively a sort of a promise that you will get really a steady price for the electricity you generate. And that's what you refer to as the strike price. That's £100 per megawatt hour or whatever. And yeah, from what I remember working with investors, that was what was so attractive about some of these early projects. It looked a bit too good to be true because it was just very stable income rolling off this project a bit like a bond or something. And yet the rates of return that you were getting on the investment were that bit higher. So as investments, they were pretty attractive, especially at those higher CFD strike prices. Yeah. I mean, from the sound of it, if, if we get to a point in the future where the subsidies is felt that they're not needed anymore. Is investing in renewable energy more like equity investing than bond investing in that example, if you play it through, where you're not having to pay back customers when the price has gone up? So you feel the full benefit of price rising, but you're also fully exposed on the negative. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think that is right. It's interesting. If you don't have the support mechanism in place, what can happen is is we have a work or cannibalization of the market, basically where the market will destroy itself. And if you think in the future we'll need to meet our net zero targets, this requires a lot more renewables to be built. If you have an extra, say, 20, 30 gigawatts of offshore wind, they tend to generate all at the same time. So when you've got an extra 30 gigawatts of power all generating at the same time into the same market, there is a large chance that they will drive down that wholesale price. And without any support scheme to keep them at a set level of return, although you might have some upside benefits from those high prices in the market, it's probably equally or more likely that the impact of the whole fleet is going to really drive down your profit over the long term. So actually trying to model this effectively, looking at what this could mean for your project in terms of merchant returns is becoming a lot more important to investors now. Yeah, that strikes me as a really key point. And I hadn't appreciated that either, that if you're investing in a wind plant today, you've not only got to think obviously very hard about the subsidies and what you're getting, take a view on future prices, but you've also got to take a view on the future plants that are going to get built after you. Because they amount, and potentially quite a lot, because we're looking at net zero targets, there's a lot of potential offshore wind coming. It could mean that your plant is not actually able to generate electricity all of the time. And maybe when it is, it's exactly the time when prices are not very high, which doesn't seem like a great situation. No. I think what that really gets interesting is we did some work looking at what net zero means in terms of capacity. So um, to try and put that into context, we currently have an install capacity of about 100 gigawatts in the UK system or GB system. By 2050, we'll need to grow that out to be around, if we look at natural grid scenarios, it's going to be about 270 gigawatts. Or if we look at the Committee on Climate Changes scenario, it's about 360 gigawatts. So that's a massive increase in capacity, partly because renewables also need to be backed up. So we need to build both renewables and secure capacity in the future to match that. Also, as we increase electrification, that also drives a need for more electricity. It's a growing sector, but the risks associated with trying to build out also grow as those capacities increase. I mean, I suppose when we think about historic energy sources, we didn't have this reliance on wind or sun or that sort of thing that is sort of outside of our control. So presumably, as these new wind farms are being produced, there's a lot of thinking around storage of energy as well. And that could be a bit of a saviour in the future in terms of that exposure that you mentioned before in terms of the surges and the falls in prices. Yes. So in fact, LCP provides, as I mentioned earlier, we actually look at what the impact is on security supply with these technologies. So we'll look at the amount of firm capacity, amount of renewables, and then work out how much more we need to actually keep the lights on in the country. And as you said, the, one of the big issues then is when it's not windy, when it's not sunny, is how do you make sure there's enough capacity on the system and what technologies can actually take that space? 
And while we have things like battery storage can sort of do the sort of short periods over sort of a number of hours during a day, if you saw a period of maybe a week or two of low wind, that requires something completely different. Whether that then becomes a sort of gas backup, more nuclear on the system, biomass, that's still to be decided, I think, long term. But there are some quite big challenges affecting those revenue streams in the future. And the reverse is true as well. If you have a period of very high renewables for weeks or months, you can see a sort of a gas asset sitting there only running a couple of hours a year, but having to recover all the money it needs to actually keep open during that period. So it gets very volatile again. Unless there's something there to provide revenue, it becomes very difficult for those assets to survive. Yeah, so it strikes me we've got this really tricky planning challenge around some combination of renewables, batteries, which from the sound of it do need to get a bit better. And then these other technologies like nuclear and gas that are somewhat that's still going to be needed have that tricky dilemma of not generating much of the time but having to still be there and make a profit on them so i guess there's a real planning job there between the different amounts of those that are getting built out is there also a feature of the wind farms that were built years ago versus the ones that will be built in 10 years time as technology develops presumably the ones that are going to be built in 10 years are likely to be more effective or is that all to do with the sort of storage of the energy rather than how it's sort of generated yeah, I think we've seen a real uptick in the level of technology being deployed. I think turbines from sort of 2000s, the early 2000s, were much smaller in size and therefore created much less power. I think the new ones we're seeing now, we're sort of looking at 12, 15 megawatt turbines, and they're nearly the same height as the Shard now in London. So if you can imagine those all being built out at sea, just the amount of space they take up compared to the old ones means you can deploy a lot more of these and actually produce a lot more energy from them. So we are seeing a real maturing of this technology, which opens up a lot of opportunities for providing more power from renewables in the future. And I guess from an investor's perspective, there is that sort of risk that if you're investing in the plants being built today, that might be sort of overtaken or dominated by something built in the future. Yeah, I think that's right. I think technology's still got some way to go, not just for wind, but across all technologies before we actually reach complete maturity across the sectors. And that's why having that sort of contract in place with government or understanding how other technologies can come forward and impact the market is really important for your investments today. And yet on that note, it sounds like the development of battery technology is going to be one thing we're going to be hearing a lot more about potentially over the next sort of 10, 20 years. Because if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the batteries exist to sort of move energy within a few hours, but not really over the course of a few days or weeks. So is that something you see changing? Yeah, that's completely right. I think we're looking at what's going to provide that sort of longer term power. I think there's technologies such as pump hydro, which we have a lot of in the UK, but we build out more of that. That'll be really good at shifting that sort of intraday power. And the other thing we don't talk about a lot is actually the hydrogen being used in the future. So we can start producing hydrogen through electrolysis. We can actually have a long-term storage solution to actually burn hydrogen to create power, which sort of solves that interseasonal issue that we see in the market. Oh, I see. So that's hydrogen as a sort of a storage technology. Yeah, so it really takes both boxes. So if you've got a very windy, sunny summer with low demand, you can turn that up and create quite cheap hydrogen. In the winter, where you actually need that power to provide electricity for people's homes, you can then use that hydrogen to actually power gas turbines in the future. So it could really be a silver bullet potentially in the future. And where do you see nuclear fitting into all this? And that's obviously it can be a bit of a controversial debate sometimes in the UK. What's the current thinking on how that fits into the future at all? So I think right now we're really at a crossroads where you could see multiple technologies really go forward and sort of fix the issues we have on the system. I think we talk about hydrogen, we talk about biomass and carbon capture and storage, but at the moment we've got a massive challenge in reaching our net zero target. So I don't think it's a case of pick one technology and run with it. I think it will really will be a case that we need several different technologies to move forward together to actually deliver net zero. I think nuclear is definitely one of those technologies we need to keep pursuing. So there is space for, to my mind, there's so many different types of energy technologies being sort of banded about at the moment. I wasn't sure whether there was a sort of 
we're experimenting with a few, but you know, we're only going to have one in the future. If it sounds like there's space for quite a number of different sources of energy in the future. I think that's right. I think the size of the challenge we're looking at is significant enough that we'll need to actually be building lots of everything. We will need lots. I think the numbers are quite staggering what we'll need to produce, but it'll be a case of what mechanisms work in terms of financing these projects, how investors see the merchant markets, just what technologies do work in GB long term. Yeah, and you raise a great point there in terms of how to finance those projects. And that's a very topical issue with regularly see headlines of, of one think tank or another saying that pension schemes and other asset owners should be financing these sort of things. And listeners may well know I've got a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that exact point, because I think it often gets the whole situation backward. I believe that there's plenty of demand from pension schemes for assets at the right risk return levels. And that's been one of the issues with senior renewables. They've been so popular and been so heavily bid by investors from around the world but actually they've been bid to levels that actually aren't that attractive. And I think that's often missed when the government's sort of constantly saying that pension schemes should invest more in energy. But I would love to see pension schemes play a role in that if the assets were at the sort of right risk return levels. But I suppose that's the really tricky thing to get right in a world where, like you say, Kyle, where there's a lot more power price risk going on and just a little bit less security of those income streams involved with the assets. What you're saying is we need lots of investment in energy, but then Dan, what you're saying is lots of people are investing in energy. And in fact, that's why some of the pricing doesn't look quite so attractive from a pension scheme or indeed any investor perspective. I think so. I mean, as we know, it's a globalised world in terms of the asset marketplace. So you have people bidding on UK energy assets. You know, you have Dutch schemes, Danish schemes, Australian investors, Singaporeans, Chinese, Japanese are all big owners. Some of those are levered buyers are always going to bid slightly higher. So I don't think there's any reason why UK schemes should be aggressively trying to bid against those buyers for any particular reason why they should want to do that. One other point I was going to ask Kyle actually was when I've done a little bit of research into this and looked at who actually owns the UK renewable fleet, I was a bit surprised to discover that for the sort of financial investors that we deal with is only really a minority of the owners. Is that right? How does the ownership sort of shake out? I think certainly for the big offshore wind projects, we've seen a massive increase in the amount of joint ventures going on. So we will see developers come together, sign agreements where they will basically share the risk, most of the rewards of building these assets. And once these are actually built, constructed and operational, you're absolutely right that these are very safe, long-term revenue streams coming from them. So we do see a shift then from developers actually owning them through to sort of pension schemes, investors and taking on the sort of long-term control of those assets. So that's what we're really seeing currently. I think the early CFDs, especially in the early renewable contracts, are very good and have done very well at sort of capitalizing on that market. Whether or not current CFDs and the future ones are as favorable to investors, I think we'll see a number of the changes we discussed, such as negative pricing rules, lower lower strike prices being achieved, does mean that it becomes slightly more risky for investors. And whether or not we'll see pension funds continuing to invest in them, is something we'll have to wait and see, I think. I guess with the contribution of a lot of these projects to the sort of net zero type targets, do you also see that a lot of companies are investing in these sorts of projects almost to offset some sort of worse emissions data that they've got elsewhere in the firm, just so that they can sort of say that they're contributing to net zero, even if other projects that they're running are less helpful? I think what we have really seen a change is companies contracting directly with renewable suppliers. So they'll actually take the power from a wind farm and use that. And as you say, they are procuring and consuming green power. Whereas before, you might have seen them using gas or coal or just a general mix of technologies from the system. But I think there's much more emphasis on companies trying to be greener, trying to be better for the environment. And part of that is actually buying green power directly from those sellers. And as we see the developers look to build out more and more plants, should it be the case that some of their earlier developments, they'll look to sell on their stakes in those to almost recycle the capital into new developments? Is that how the system ought to work? 
So I think we've seen quite a big change recently in just how companies are set up. And I think a good one is probably Scottish Power, who did own quite a diverse fleet of power stations before. Actually sold a lot of its portfolio off to a company called Drax last year, whereby they decided to go forward with just a renewable business themselves, whereas Drax has take on a mix of sort of gas and pump storage assets for more firm power in the market. So we've seen a real mix of people who want to do both still, and there are companies who do have a diverse portfolio, with other ones deciding, actually, we want to pursue the route of just renewables, or we want to go down the pathway of providing firm power to back up the system. So we are seeing a lot of companies now sort of deciding which way they want to go and sort of position themselves in that way going forwards. So it sounds like if you compare to the sort of historic coal power being the sort of the main source of power, there's a hell of a lot of moving parts here and a lot of having to react very quickly. And I guess that's kind of where your team comes in, in terms of trying to make some sense of all of this data that's moving so quickly. Is that a fair summary? I think even within the team, we try to update how we do things quite a lot of the time. So I think we try to use quite a lot of stochastic modeling, which is when you'll run thousands of simulations looking at different weather patterns, how that impacts demand, how it impacts generation, to look at where there are opportunities in the market, and try and give a better picture of actually what the revenues for different assets will be in the future. So that's been something we've been really promoting recently is actually this system is very complex and the smallest change as we see a small change to the CFD in terms of negative pricing can have a massive impact on the revenue you can expect to make from an asset. So I think it's being very mindful that the system is very complex now at sort of whether or not and looking at the amount of renewables it really impacts that complexity but also looking at just how the market is starting to change and mature in terms of different subsidy schemes really does have an impact on investors and what revenue you can expect to make in the future. So, Carl, how can investors get a handle on some of these complexities? Is there any sort of analysis out there that can help them understand some of these factors? Yeah, this is something we've been asking ourselves for a little while now. And we've actually just got around to launching our GB Power Investment Index. So this is something we'll be doing with Frontier Economics on a quarterly basis, where we'll have quarterly webinars to actually sit down and discuss the most recent economic changes, including policy regulation that are going to impact the system, with LCP then looking at what this means for revenue of different assets on the system. So our website, which is live, it's uh, powerindex.lcp.uk.com actually looks at presenting all this information in a sort of visual form. So you compare the returns of different technologies across a range of scenarios, examine key drivers and costs, and then create your own custom assets to actually look at what this means for your current fleet or proposed investments. So really giving you a chance to dig in, look at what this means in terms of revenue for projects and understandings without having to get really stuck into the detail. So I guess this is relevant for both investors that have already decided they want to invest in energy and they're trying to work out kind of which aspect they want to invest the most in, but also presumably investors that haven't made that decision yet, but they're working out when the right time might be to invest in energy because they can keep considering the opportunity on a quite a live basis. Yeah, I think it's really for both. I think in terms of what we actually provide, there's quite a good overview of all the technologies as well. So if you're looking at a wind farm investment or a solar farm, you can really compare these against each other or bring in other things that you might not be thinking about, such as flexible products, which could be quite interesting for your portfolio to sort of even that up and give you a chance to explore actually what are the key drivers behind these prices going up or down in the future. Fantastic. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I suppose it makes sense to look at in a portfolio context. Obviously, you kind of want solar and wind because you don't tend to get windy and sunny at the same time. But obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that, what you're saying in terms of building up this portfolio, having some of the flexible providers as well, having some of the more stable providers in there. Yeah, exactly. I think the other thing we do quite nicely is then show you if you're going to be supported or not, what that sort of impact is on your range of profits potentially. So you really dig into actually, if I want to have a CFD attached to my project, what does this mean for the future? Whereas if I wanted to go merchant with a new project potentially, where are my risks and what are the opportunities? It's really giving them a good feel for how the sector will work for that technology going forwards. When you say go merchant, you just mean sell the power and the market price and the day it comes out. 
yeah, yeah, basically without a contract in place from government, no subsidy scheme. So Kyle, that's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. If the listeners want to see this material that you're releasing on an ongoing basis, where can they find you? So the best place to find me is either on my LinkedIn profile. We also have an LCP LinkedIn page as well and Twitter feed. Otherwise, the best place is the LCP website where you'll find us on the Energy Analytics tab. And Kyle, we always ask our guests this. What would you say is the most underappreciated thing about investing? So probably from my point of view is actually investors understanding how a quite small change in policy and regulation actually flows through to be quite sizable in terms of impact in the actual energy markets, which is something we've seen time and time again throughout changes to the energy system. And more to come on that, presumably. Yes, no doubt there will be. Great. Well, Kyle, thanks so much. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed that. Thanks so much for your time today. Perfect. Thanks, Booth. Thanks, Kyle. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again for another episode next week. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.